listening to Inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn. Oh, oh no. So I, I, I pushed the record button and Jackie. Listen, it's her. just because my husband hates me. I don't know. I mean, he hasn't been here all day. So of course, like, yes, that was going to happen. That hey. was going to happen. That's the way it works. It's cool. It's cool. Um, hi, Jackie. All right, this is, sorry. This is actually a good <laughs> reminder for me. I think I'm going to let my dog out of this room because he's going to freak out when my daughter gets home. So listen, I mean, <laughs> my son ran have it. Yeah. he's like, I'm going to not have the dogs barking. And then here we go. Yeah. Um, so, Hey, this is the inclusive AF podcast. I'm Katie Van Horn and I am Jackie Clayton. Hello. Hello. Um, so, uh, we will let our special guest, uh, go let her dog out of the room. Um, I think she's in good company here since, um, I've got two, uh, little ones pretending to be asleep right now until, you know, one of your dogs, (laughs) right. The wind blows, um, things like that. So, um, so I am here in Arizona on a very overcast, cloudy August day, which isn't really a thing. So I don't really know how to like handle this That's whole weird. I am uh, here in Waco, Texas. We let the water run for an hour. We're allowed to water our grass on Sundays. And yet okay. it wasn't wet. This was the neatest trick ever. Just let the water go. Poof. I mean, uh-huh. instantly turned into vapor. It was the coolest yes other uh, I've ever seen but in other news sweet baby TJ is going back to college nice but interesting thing you know he goes to Houston Tillotson which is an HBCU and they partnered with St. Edwards the Catholic school and so he's actually going to be going it's like a cultural exchange the upperclassmen get to go to St. Edwards and uh, the kids that go to Houston Tillotson are there on the St. Edwards campus and get to use all of their facilities it's going to be an interesting interesting year so that's for the whole like for the for the whole year or just the semester what's the for, the for the year i think oh wow okay right on that's we'll find cool. out i mean we're only like one bad lunch away from i want to go back to houston i mean you know yeah kids yeah. am i right i understand yeah i i've been through the the catholic school experience so i can attest to the fact that it might be slightly overwhelming <laughs> it might it might it might <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, without further ado, uh, we do have a, a guest with us today and would love for her to introduce herself. So Cheryl, I'm going to turn it over to you. Share with our listeners who you are, all that good stuff. Hi, everyone. My name is Cheryl Kababa. My pronouns are she and her, and I am the chief strategy officer for a design and development consultancy in Seattle called Substantial. And I run an equity-centered and human-centered design practice. Um, I also just recently wrote a book called Closing the Loop Systems Thinking for Designers. So those are kind of my areas of expertise, and I'm really excited to kind of talk about our work. Awesome. Very cool. Well, congratulations, first off, on the book. Um, and we'll uh, definitely put a link in our show notes so folks can connect to that. Um, so can you explain for folks that are, are uh, maybe not aware, what is design thinking? Yeah, so design thinking, so um, I oftentimes describe it in our practice as human-centered design um, because it kind of like says what it is right there, which is 
it's um, a problem solving process that is focused on those who are going to be using the products or services that you're designing. Um, and it just it puts those people at the center of the development process. And so part of it is understanding their context, um, co-designing them, having them participate in the design process. And this is something that I think oftentimes, you know, especially like I work in the um, uh, primarily in ed tech in the technology sector, and you oftentimes have had products over the decades that are not that don't seem particularly designed for people who are going to be using them. An example I use a lot of the time is if you think about, you know, tech digital technology in the '80s, you know, like remote controls or uh, VCRs or what have you. They were kind of designed to for the thing to work. But if you looked at a remote control, for example, you'd be like, I don't have any idea what's going on here. All the buttons are the same size. They don't have any affordances, what we call affordances in design that kind of tell you what they're supposed to do. They're not focused on the user experience. And so now that has advanced quite a bit in digital technology. You know, you think about the products that Apple has put out and how intuitive um, products are. Um, and part of that is really understanding end users, their contexts and what have you in, and in baking that into the design process so that things are intuitive, they're easy to use and that they actually serve people in a way that creates the best outcomes. Um, and so that's what we're focused on. And that's why I kind of say that our, my, our practice at Substantial is focused not on human-centered design, but equity-centered design, because we're really kind of thinking about the broader subsets of people who are not typically um, served by um, you know, products and services and how do we kind of create better outcomes for them? That's awesome. I, I, what I'm relating it to is, you know, the marketing and, you know, sometimes, you know, the, the sales slash finance folks that do a lot of the personas when they're developing whatever product and, and how we've now, you know, determined the bias that lies within those personas a lot of times and that, you know, it doesn't really look at the outliers or different subsets, things along those lines. So I, I love that you're doing this and thinking about this and, and pushing folks in this direction because it's such a critical piece of how we need to think about tools for the future, tools for now and tools for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, one of the things, and I think this is why we've really focused, I mean, equity center design practice is just kind of thinking about our own privileges and biases and how we can essentially kind of think about like the work we're doing and how that sort of positionality has an impact on what we're doing. Um, and so ensuring that we have representation on our team for designing and also like using design strategy to create better solutions that serve people across the board rather than just like serving those who are the most privileged and we know that this happens a lot in education which is like the space primarily where i work is like you see a lot of the system kind of designed for students who are kind of the most privileged of students you see this especially in ed tech because oftentimes those products are tested in like the most resource um the most uh 
the schools that have the most resources, the schools that um, are predominantly white, that are suburban, et cetera. And then they think it's going to work across the board for everyone. And oftentimes that's not necessarily the case, like different um, students have different needs and um, also schools are resourced quite differently. And so kind of like thinking about how to be inclusive in terms of like your design process is really important to serving, being able to serve everyone. I love that you say that. It, it's it's so true. And I think we've kind of alluded to this somewhat in the DEIB world. It's very similar where when you have that, if it's been a study in college, if you have that academic piece without the reality, you see it a lot in social work where it's like you've learned all of the fundamentals of social work. And then it's like, okay, now go work with this group of people. And it's like, whoa, this is a different experience because it's nothing like the lab when you're you're deep in it and you're see, I think it's so much because we have all of this knowledge but we're bringing these things to the masses and how can you make sure that what you're bringing and it makes total sense to you right and then it's somebody else where these things don't make sense I, I would love to ask as you go through the education what do you think is the most overlooked or the most um common mistakes that you've seen yeah, um, I'm seeing this kind of, it's, it's kind of like interesting because it's not necessarily what we'd expect when think about the intersection of technology and education. But I think that um, they, there ends up being sort of this desire to serve those who are kind of like in historically under-resourced communities with certain types of technology that, um, I don't know, kind of like replaces interpersonal experiences or sort of creates these processes and efficient that are focused on efficiency that you don't see in well-resourced environments. So I think some good examples are things like, um, you know, just thinking about how assessments and that sort of thing, like they, use or you know in the system of education you might see um sort of set assessments that use technology to kind of like figure out how to track students and what have you used in environments where it's like there's like huge student populations there's a lot of diversity and what have you and then but then you have a more sort of like these bespoke systems that are very interpersonal in like very privileged schools like private schools or like wealthy um high high resourced you know suburban schools and i think um we were kind of seeing that like i think the pandemic sort of shed a light on this is like this sort of technology gap in education when it comes to access to digital technology, but then sort of the desire to kind of like use technology in a way to compensate for the lack of resources within certain environments, if that makes sense. And so I think about all of these sort of social factors as I think this is why I'm so interested in systems thinking, because like all of these social factors and political factors account for how educational technology is deployed. And that is something that I don't think ed tech developers are always like super aware of. Like there's oftentimes a perspective that, oh, we can disrupt education. Um, think about a few years ago, there was like a real focus on 
what they called MOOCs, like massive online courses. Um, and everybody was kind of like, oh, this is going to be the future of ex uh, education. It's going to be super accessible. But what was wrong with that is like these elite universities were kind of like using it as a way of trying to serve a broader base of students. But really, it was just like these automated sort of courses where you're just it's like a one way relationship with students, whereas like if you're taking um, one of these online virtual courses with Harvard, you're just getting like a lecture and then you're taking like multiple choice questions. If you're at Harvard, like in person, like as a student, you're getting that like interpersonal experience, you're getting like the value of like the networks that you'll develop at a place like Harvard. And so it's kind of thinking about these things and how they actually in a real way either serve or don't serve people across the board. Um, and so that's those like one of the things like we like to think about a lot are just like what are the um you know socioeconomic barriers what are the racial barriers to success how do we eliminate that if we're in equity if we have a focus on equity how do we eliminate um race and socioeconomic status as predictors of success um and so that those are some of the things that we're focused on I love that. It, it, it makes me, it, there's two things that come to mind as you're, you're talking, Cheryl. One is, and I, I don't know if either of you saw it, but Abbott Elementary, they had an episode where the teachers were all given, like, I think it was an iPad and it was like, okay, go use this. And, you know, some of the older teachers or, you know, more experienced uh, teachers um, were lost as to how do we do this? You know, what, you know, how do we actually make this work? That kind of thing. Um, and so, you do have some of those, you know, from a, a education perspective on the teachers, you know, level, but then it also just, it, I think all of us experienced, uh, my sister's at a Title IX school in Arizona, and she, when the kids were all sent home during COVID, it was like, okay, well, we can do school online. Well, no, we can't because some of these kids don't have internet at home. Some right. of these kids, you know, don't have access to a laptop or whatever, you know, tool they were going to use. So, you know, I did create some major barriers for, for those students. Um, and I think to your point, we were very quick to jump on the bandwagon of, oh, we can do this all online, all these trainings and, and more of the, you know, adult education space. And yet it was, it is that community, those conversations, all of those things. And, you know, kind of almost relates to like the work from home or, or work in the office situation where you miss those water cooler talks. Um, but it is just a, a fascinating concept because it is how do we do this the right way? Yeah, exactly. I think there's, and we're kind of just like, we're in the middle of all that is like figuring out like, well, are there benefits that we can take away that actually serve students who are in environments who in which they're experiencing um lots of unconscious bias and what have you um you know there's actually some subsets of students like that benefited from being able to be online you know you look at students who kind of weren't served by the system um there's you know a lot of anecdotal evidence from um black parents being like you know like that my student my my child was being tracked and what have you and then like when we went online it felt like there was like more of a chance for them to kind of like be able to be themselves and what have you and so people have like very unique experiences um 
in education. And I think it's like, we're all just kind of like grappling systematically of like, how do you better serve students who have not been served um, well through the system across the board? And I think that's why like a big aspect of it, um, us having like an equity centered design practice is really kind of thinking about inclusive design at the core of that. So thinking about how you um, design with and for those who are kind of like who have the least power in the system who are least served by the system. And that means like elevating student voice throughout our process, but also kind of thinking about like which students are the most historically um, under resourced and just like involving them throughout the process. I think like good example, some good examples like in sort of other domains are, um, you know, we talk about things like curb cuts. Um, those are kind of designed with a certain population in mind, those who are in wheelchairs, but there's a lot of other people who benefit from curb cuts. It's like anytime you're pushing a stroller, anytime you're like, have a cart with wheels or if you're like even just like walking alongside your bike you're like benefiting from that particular design um subtitles are another good example like a lot of people use subtitles who don't um who don't have like um hearing disabilities right and so how do we basically kind of design the world in a way that benefits those who aren't usually served by design first and foremost, and see the benefits that that might um, afford other people. I, I think it's almost a good example when you think, like I have a MacBook. When the, we had the pad pandemic, we used to laugh because like my kids are like, you know, by technical, they can use a Windows laptop, they can use an Android, and they can use a Mac, like they're used to it. But so many kids were having a problem and you think about i'm a full apple user but because of that i know how to use all of these different tools right and anytime someone starts at textio and we we send them a mac um and not only is it a place of privilege look we don't even ask and i can't tell you how many times people are like uh there's no power button like just getting started from the very basic you know or I don't feel comfortable putting my fingerprint, like what's happening, like all of these things that we just take for granted. But what is scarier is that as we've gotten to this point, you have, you can trace it all the way back. Like this was not created with you in mind. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and also within the whole system of a family, I think is very telling because kids are, have been exposed to different technology that different generations, maybe they haven't been exposed to that technology. And, um, how do we how do we get to move forward? I, I mean, it's a struggle because right now I don't even know how all of this is going to end up working. You know, like I keep thinking about we think about the college level and what's the call. I think about it with my son being 20. Um, like, what is that experience and getting there next to all of these other kids and getting the same messages? I don't think people recognize that people in various groups like we don't speak the same language even you know when you're different racially or different age or you live in a different place we don't we say the same thing but the impact can be completely different hi my name is sarah and i want to tell you about my podcast called 
Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Yeah, totally. It's it's really interesting. Um, we see that sort of thing a lot in our project in the projects we work on, you know, we'll be talking to, like we do some work in um, the post-secondary space. We might talk to faculty or instructors and then talk to students about, you know, their experiences with certain courses. And we know, for example, like with certain, um, you know, what they call gateway courses in higher ed, um, there is a racial disparity gap. There's a socioeconomic disparity um, and it's interesting talking to faculty and hearing like assumptions about, um, oh yeah, students are just not doing the work or what have you. And then when you talk to the students, they're like, I am working a job, you know, I am like taking care of my child. I am like doing all of these other things. And that just gets interpreted as like laziness or like lack of interest or what have you when they're actually working like two times or three times as hard as the next student who doesn't have all those responsibilities. And so like providing that context um, through our work to like institutions and also kind of like thinking about how can we design these systems or what sort of pedagogies need to be considered um, to account for these kinds of um, experiences that students are having is just like, it can be really enlightening, um, especially for administrators and also like technology developers who aren't aware of like those, that's what a lot of student experience is like. Um, so that's really like a I think that's why um one of the most important aspects of our work is like really like elevating student voice like letting those who are kind of designing systems and solutions for students know what students are thinking and involving students within that process um and not just and trying also not to do it in a super extractive way like oh can we hear about like all your trauma of like dropping out of school or what have you um but involving them like within the you know how would you kind of like design this in the ideal sense for yourself and how can we kind of like give you the tools and like the involvement to be able to do that and so that's something like we push for ourselves as well like honestly our practice is just like always evolving also you know like we're I feel like we're on our own equity journey as well so I think that's something like that we always have to acknowledge it's like how can we continue to improve in this space um and also center those who typically don't have power in the process and how do you do that because i'm wondering like if you're working with students how do you select the students or do they self do you have partnerships with different organizations do people opt in how does that process work 
Yeah, we're oftentimes working with institutions and with schools so that we can, um, I don't know, involve students directly who are one interested in being involved, um, as well as, uh, yeah, trying to be like really clear about our process and um, setting expectations about what that means. And so it's it's like knowing what kind of time is going to involve, how much we're going to pay them for their involvement. Um, what, you know, is going to be kind of expected of them. And it's a mix of like research recruiting um, avenues, like it could be directly through um, different schools or what have you. We do this also in K-12. Um, and then, and, or it can be kind of direct recruiting. So oftentimes we have Google Forms out there and we ask sort of like community organizations that we know of to share them like the Boys and Girls Club or what have you to share them with parents and um, parents and students. And yeah, it's not easy and it's, it's very like, uh, it's kind of a mix of recruiting practices um, and what we're most interested in is trying to kind of get a diversity of folks involved so that it's not just like, oh, let's just like go to the closest school to wherever our client's organization is or what have you. It's like, how do we kind of like make sure that we can have that mix of students who can be involved in this process? That's great. And I, I think, you know, the, the pieces that I would love for you to share a little bit about, you know, what are some of the things so, you know, for our listeners, a lot of them are choosing software, choosing an LMS or, you know, training things along those lines. What are the things that they should be looking at themselves as they're either writing a training, if they are, you know, maybe a a, a, um, a designer of training, or it could be that they are selecting software, whatever it might be. What are some things that they should be thinking about, looking at, uh, considering? Yeah, I think it's really important to have, to kind of be thinking about it from a systems perspective. So having a mix of stakeholders, especially those who you're expecting will be like the end users or end beneficiaries of whatever it is you're designing, whether it's a training or whether you're kind of selecting software and having them part of the process of doing so, um, you know, we we talk, for example, with like a lot of teachers and it's really interesting, like every school system seems to have like some sort of software systems that the teachers just loathe or just don't want to use or has just been like foisted upon them. Um, LMSs are a big one, right? They fall into that category really often. Um, and every um, teacher or instructor um, has uh or or an educator in general like when you start asking questions about you know what are have you ever kind of used software that hasn't been part of the system like the formalized system where you work and it's like oh yeah you know like i'm getting stuff from like teachers paid teachers i am like using youtube and TikTok in my classroom i'm doing like all of these things that are not actually like really like sanctioned through the school like everybody is going rogue but they're not really going rogue they're just like doing what makes the most sense to them in terms of getting their work done as well as what resonates the most with the learners who they're you know tasked with like educating and so it's 
is kind of like, how do you kind of take that information and that knowledge and design better systems for people who are actually meant to be the users and also who are meant to be the beneficiaries like students. So many of these decisions about like, what software should we be using? What LMS should we be using? is like confined to like the IT or like some administrative body where their greatest incentive is just thinking about what's the least expensive and what's going to slot in the easiest with like things we're already using, like what will be the least disruptive. And oftentimes that's not like I, I also teach um, in the at University of Washington and I will complain all day long about our LMS. But it's kind of funny because whenever I do that, people are like, yeah, you know, the one you use there is like kind of the best one. And I was like, what? <laughs> it's like, I'm always trying to hack it. Um, and so I think it's like, and that's a good example. Like I came in as an instructor and all of that software is just foisted upon me. And I'm just like, I don't like, how does this even all work together? And I think it's just like making sure you have that broad set of stakeholders who are going to be using, who you're depending on to kind of like use and benefit from this and having them as part of the decision-making process. I think that's like what's most important is like who is not in the room in the decision-making process and how can you make them more a part of that so that you're not making decisions that will affect everybody and frustrate everybody and maybe lead to like bad outcomes. I mean, a lot of things I can complain about in LMS, but it's not, um, there's actually decisions about things in school that like assessments, what assessments are being used, what assessments are used for that can have like really dire consequences if you're not involving the right people within that process. And they don't use it. I mean, I think one of the things that drives me crazy is when you talk to people and you say, so what would you wish? And they'll tell you something and you're like, it actually does that. Like, because they, because it depends on who onboarded them, right? Like yeah. this was the most important thing to the person who taught you the product or like you were saying, it's not intuitive, you know? Like my favorite game, we bought a new house last year. Um, it's our house anniversary. It's been one year. And I, oh, my nice. favorite game is guess which light switch goes with which light because it's all wrong nobody has passed you will never pass it doesn't make any sense i go through this walk every day and it's like there are people with the, these products that they just give up they're like you know what oh you have under cabinet lighting yeah i just can never find the switch so i never turn it on but i wish i had under cabinet lighting and it's like you do and so it is hard because the person who makes the decision in partnership with finance don't always align with the person who's actually using the software and then the software doesn't evolve very well with the needs of teachers like you were talking about during the pandemic then all of a sudden this product that was perfect that we spent you know millions of dollars is not gonna you know meet our needs this need has changed and having it be scalable with the different requirements um, or what you're expected to teach must be frightening, overwhelming. I won't say frightening, yeah. I'll say overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, as a as a systems thinker, I like to think of myself as a systems thinker. Like <laughs> I think all the time about, um, there's this classic in organizational management and systems thinking, Peter Senge um, wrote The Fifth Discipline. 
um, several decades ago. And I always think about one of the principles in there is um, yesterday's solutions or today's problems. And I think that's something that's worth kind of thinking about whenever you're thinking about implementing something new within an organization is like, what are the potential consequences of this? And how can this yeah, potentially result in new problems that we'll then have to solve. And not to say like we can anticipate everything, but I think just a little bit of work of like trying to understand like what the secondary effects might be, what the tertiary effects might be, um, can help us at least anticipate if those things are going to happen and be better in our sort of like decision making process. So something like that really sticks with me as we kind of do our work in strategizing about solutions is like oh i don't even like the word solutions honestly anymore because i'm like you're actually you're probably solving less <laughs> than you're introducing in terms of problems right <laughs> right so yeah um i have time to think about things as like approaches or um you know <laughs> I leverage points you know? <laughs> it's always like if you could just take it one more click that's what i always say one yeah, more click i used to be it. a business analyst so i'm always dangerous where i'm like uh i feel like we could do because i have no i don't have the idea i just know it could be a little bit different if we could just take it that one more step and i think that's what's so important about equity because it's like okay we came up with it and it's like okay did you think about all these other things um, even though you have a so-called working, you know, product, it's not, it only works if it works. And so right. you have to go back often to the, the drawing board. And I like what you were saying about the fifth dimension, because that's what I keep saying about, that's the challenge with all these AI solutions and chat GPT that's based on information from over two years ago that we're using today. And so what problems are we solving? Are we solving, we're using it to solve problems that were created two years ago because it doesn't know anything about what I'm talking about today. Um, the challenges yeah. I have didn't exist. There weren't anything for it to, to pull on. Um, and I think that that happens a lot of trying to figure out, especially now, because I, I you can't, I'm reading the black swan and which is, talks about predictability yeah. and about how you can't predict. And it's like, so I give up at this point. The book gave me permission <laughs> to stop trying to, you know, because people ask me all the time, what's the future of work going to be? What's the future of DEIB? What is the, and I get to the book, The Black Swan allows me to say, I don't know, dude, anything could happen. <laughs> it's really possible. No idea. That's awesome. Yeah. It <laughs> I think that's the piece, though, that it is the there are I mean, we've seen so much of an evolution in and how people learn as well that, you know, I think for many of us that grew up in a certain time or, or started working in a certain time, it was those, you know, click through trainings and, you know, you sat there for two hours or however many hours and, you know, then they figured, oh, well, we need to put timers on there so that we know that people are actually reading the content or we need to put in questions or all these different things. And now this whole concept of micro learning, I, I think is also just another piece where it's how do we think about how folks learn today? And it's a, a TikTok video. It's not a two hour, <laughs> two hour deal. Um, and how do we, you know, even just those simple changes that can make such a difference in people actually absorbing and, and getting whatever we're trying to get across, which is great. So. 
Um, it's interesting. Um, so Cheryl, when you think about kind of the, the challenges that you're facing today in your work with, you know, different organizations with different, um, educators or, you know, governmental agencies, whatever, you know, whoever it might be that would be the decision makers, what are the challenges that you're facing today that maybe were different than they were pre COVID? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there's um, there's actually a lot of I don't know. I I I I would hesitate to say like there's a lot that's totally different because I do think there is still this sort of techno optimism that really infects like everything we do, especially you know, in in the. US, like we're kind of like very focused on like what kinds of how can technology disrupt education and not just education, it's like all of the things. And I think one of the fundamental issues, and there's like rather than talking about like what's the distinction, I think I can talk a little bit about like what's the thread, what has remained constant. And one of the issues is that. I think we think we can we can design for um, just like for everybody that we can design for people who have vastly different lived experiences, um, despite who might be on our team. And so one of the things that I really emphasize, not just with designers, but those who are just kind of like um working on or building for anybody else who's not themselves is kind of thinking really explicitly about your positionality um and your mindset because this definitely informs kind of the design process and one thing about design thinking that a lot of like our practice and other practices currently in design um sort of interrogate about design thinking is this idea that you can kind of parachute in and design for basically anyone else just by kind of learning about their context or what have you throw that solution at them and it'll like yeah it's all done and solve we can solve that for everybody um i have a friend who works in global health who once told me yeah with all of these sort of like global health efforts in all of these different places in the global south there might be like warehouses full of like solutions that are meant to combat malaria and what have you because it's people just like parachuting in kind of designing for other communities and like those communities are like reject these solutions because they're like i don't even know what this is you're trying to get me to use or tell me to do um and you know those efforts fail because they did not have anyone with like lived experiences involved in the process as part of their team as part of the decision making um and so i think that's a continues to be a common issue is that those who have the resources to solve to problem solve or design things for others think that they have this hubris that allows them to think they can kind of design things for others. I saw this picture the other day of, I think it was from the New York Times of like all of the AI leaders, AI leaders at the White House. And it was like, it was almost laughable <laughs> because it was like seven white men in a row all around the same age. And I was just like, oh my gosh, these are the people who are like, we're designing the future. And I'm like, you look like the past. I mean, That's honestly. Right. <laughs> right. 
Well, and also I there I forget how to pronounce I can never pronounce her last name correctly, but Joy, um what is her last name? She did she did the whole thing about AI, how like how AI can Oh from go MIT. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I do not want to butcher her name either. Yeah, but exactly. Yes. Like she's brilliant. So like the fact that even like if I'm assuming she was not there, like that alone, like okay, right. you're right. <laughs> you've already lost me on that one so since she i think is probably one of the best and then the other the woman that was let go from google that was mm -hmm. the person mm -hmm. and yeah so yeah well they, and that's the thing like data this is a thing that we have to recognize especially if we're working with people like I, we want to make data driven um resources and we want to be able to look at the data but you don't have to look at the data for everything um like there are some things that we and and so that's what scares me about about saying like when you're looking at the various data at the different pieces or you're doing various surveys it you know don't let that get in the way of moving forward to be more equitable and that's what it, you know i think if we're going to be so dependent on these things people are going to have to make those choices because the the algorithm will just feed it to ourselves you know it's like the ai of ai and then you know none of us know anything anymore <laughs> like the reality just washes and, away and the robots are taken over yes. and the robots have taken yeah. over <laughs> um, i mean one one thing that was a little promising this is kind of an aside is that I saw this thing about like how some of these AI um, systems, like if they're trained on other AI generated content and it continues to go on this path, they just kind of like get weird and implode. So maybe that's yes. what with the robots. Well, yeah. you know, Replica, have you heard of Replica? So no. I was like an early, early, early adopter of Replica. It was a long time ago. And the way that they pushed it was get to know your best friend. So it's really learning from you and then feeding back to you in the tone and the way that you communicate to have these friends. But it's like what you're talking about it. There was somebody on Reddit who was like, I think my replica just started wanting to date me and I don't know what to do. <laughs> and it was like freaking <laughs> out, like the robot. It was like so weird when you're looking at it and everyone was like, oh my God, I stopped using it years ago, but I still troll the the reddit That's and it awesome. was like oh my, oh my god. god see it was only a matter of time where yes. these robots would just kind of veer off and i don't know if they were just listening when other people weren't around but it learned it was like right. this is a problem this is a problem <laughs> someone has to be able to turn the button to turn it off Those there has to be off. a human somewhere somewhere for sure so uh, Cheryl, tell me uh, tell us a little bit about the the book closing the loop. So you know what what was the impetus of writing the book and you know what what can folks learn from it? Yeah, so I so as somebody who's you know deeply versed in design thinking and human-centered design, as I mentioned earlier, there is there's lots of space to interrogate it as a process and where its shortcomings are. And um I essentially wrote the book to kind of think about like how do you how do you start with something like design thinking but then add systems thinking to it while sort of disrupting the things that don't work about design thinking and what that means is really thinking about how things are really interconnected 
um, having a broader holistic view of your problem solving space. So like I said, in education, like sometimes ed tech developers are just kind of thinking about how something might be used in the classroom and aren't thinking about policymakers or just all of the decisions, regulatory decisions, assessment decisions that kind of affect whether their product will be successful or maybe whether it will cause harm or have any unintended consequences. And so systems thinking is an important aspect of that. So just kind of thinking about how all these things are interconnected, how um, things cause different types of consequences, intended and unintended, and how you need to have like a broader holistic picture of where it is you're designing. And what that means is really broadening your stakeholders and not just like designers, oftentimes in design research, they're just talking to like if you're designing for education, for example, you're talking to teachers and students. Now we still center those um, so sort of participants within our process. And those are the ones that we're kind of like engaging in participatory design with. But we also broaden it to other people like subject matter experts who are researchers within the space, um, policymakers, as I mentioned before, people from like government entities, um, people who are like from the broader like public private sector, philanthropic organizations that work in the space and engage them kind of like throughout the decision making process, because this will give you a good picture of like, what are the barriers going to be? What are the challenges going to be? And how do you address those as you go about creating kind of like a theory of change, which is something that, um, you know, many of those who are in systems thinking do. And so it's combining design thinking and systems thinking together with the idea that we hope this can you know, engaging in these processes will increase your impact and kind of lead to better outcomes as you're kind of designing for complex things. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. That's awesome. I uh, was able to participate in a, it was a design thinking, but it was around, you know, really just a systems equity and just a lot of different things with the Clayman Institute out of Stanford during one of their uh, conferences and it was so fascinating just to see you know the different folks even just at our table the way that we approached the you know the solution to what we were trying to do with this exercise and it is always just so fascinating just to see the different voices and and what does come to mind or what does impact different people in different situations um so i i know this is one that is you know very um kind of front and center right now in education is uh, the a politicians but also parents you know being much more um what's the word katie i'm what's like the word? What is that? What's assertive, the word? assertive in how i'm just this is fun <laughs> i'm like what words should i use yeah i, I was gonna say aggressive and checked myself let's say assertive let's say assertive that that's, that's a great way to put it um so how has that impacted the work that you all do or how you are working with different uh, you know entities yeah 
Honestly, it's it's really interesting kind of like working in a space and working with teams who are focused on creating, I guess, equity centered, you know, products and services for education, because there's literally, I think some, for example, like some state um, representation that we can, we just like can even talk to, like, they don't even want to hear the term equity, they don't even want to hear social emotional learning. Right. And it's just kind of like there's kind of like this highly charged like conversation around like CRT. Like a lot of our work is focused on CRT and creating culturally responsive and um, sustaining uh, education. And it's not, yeah, it's like it's not productive to be having to. Um, I don't know, I guess, like, frame things in a way that appeases, like, those kinds of voices. Mm -hmm. um, and so I don't actually know, like, how best to navigate that, except to continue doing what we're doing and sort of develop the, like, encourage our clients to kind of develop the evidence that many of the things that they are funding as well as developing actually works and creates like the change and impact that they're seeking um and yeah it's kind of, it's really a shame because i think there's lots of student populations who would kind of benefit from that approach but might be like based in you know political environments where that's like that sort of approach is um under attack mm -hmm. um yeah i don't really know i I don't know. It's just something like we have been navigating. We've sometimes been told to like change the language um, in our proposals or in our outputs. And we don't really do that because it's like how I don't I don't understand how like changing the language changes like the purpose. Um, and so that is something that yeah we're we're glad to be working with partners who can kind of like maybe help navigate and navigate those spaces a little bit better than than we're equipped to do but yeah it's really kind of like a shame just kind of like thinking about how this is sort of the environment in which we're having to operate in a lot of places i mean we're not i mean it it is a shame because we're not preparing people for the future of yeah. what of being ready for the future and what does that entail and what does that mean and it is going to be interesting as like you're saying if it's politicized and it's different for state so it's not a set curriculum anymore on how these things get addressed and it's people do have to draw a line in the sand of saying we're not going to we're not going to work with you if you're not going to work with us like this is still the court i could take the word out we're still doing this work. This is what's behind it. I mean, they can Google us. They're not going to, we could take it out of your contract, but you know, if that's all it, and a lot of instances, that is all it is because they, they'll be the first people to say that's not fair. And it was like, we were actually trying to be fair actually, but right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard when the court, like, you know, if we're working on a project and it's really oriented around how to um, improve outcomes among multilingual learners, for example, and states are developing or like just, um, you know, yeah, certain 
politicians are developing these policies that are really oriented around like not serving those kinds of students, despite tons of evidence that shows like if you design things that serve, for example, multilingual learners, it's going to serve other students like the they are going to benefit from it. And so in a way, it's kind of like, um, I forget the name of the writer who wrote The Sum of Us, but it's it's like pouring concrete into the pool because you just like don't want certain people to benefit. So it's like nobody gets to benefit. Um, and so, yeah, it's a really kind of disheartening trajectory right now in certain places. And I feel like, yeah, but then there's like others that, um, you know, really recognize that this is where you can truly kind of like change outcomes for students and are continuing to embark in that work. And that's that's who we're tending to work with because like they have a shared point of view on this. It is so awkward because it's happening at the same time. Yeah, it's at the same time. You know, yeah, like I mean, when I in talking about TJ in St. Edwards, it's across the street from Austin, the capital, and UT, where they just got rid of affirmative action and then banned DEIB studies in um, all state-funded schools. And then you have, right. like, literally three minutes away where they have this Catholic school and the HBCU to come together. And when they asked the president, they said, we value diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's important for all of our students to get those opportunities, whether they're at an HBCU or at a Catholic school, to be able to work together. And it's like, it's going to be very interesting. I'm paying attention. I'm getting my popcorn ready. <laughs> it's all just, right there you know, in the mix. We just have these future with these participation medals. They're all pale because they can't go outside. They have no muscle tone. They don't play football. They're taking football okay. with them. It's the future. But. Oh, my God. On hope. that note. Bleak. <laughs> it's bleak. So Cheryl, uh, what is one thing or one or two things that you would uh, want our listeners to have heard in this episode or or call to action, anything along those lines? Um, I think it's, it is something that I sort of mentioned a little earlier, but I think um, all of us could be a, more aware of our positionality um, in terms of, you know, the change we're trying to make, the decisions we're making and our proximity to people who we're problem solving for or designing for. And so how do we, you know, how do you kind of like take a mindset of that understanding and understand where your own gaps are, where your own unconscious biases are, because it will inform your work. And I think, um, you know, my, my team, for example, is really versed in this, but a lot, like a lot of people just like, don't recognize that that's, that informs everything, like your level of education, like your socioeconomic status, your race and your racial experience in this country. And um, by being sort of like really transparent and explicit about that, I think it helps you kind of do better work as a designer and kind of like think about um, actually be really conscious of like where your privileges are and where your gaps of knowledge and experience are. Um, and so that's kind of like the starting point of any work that we do is kind of thinking about that on the individual level and figuring out like, how does this inform my work? And, um, you know, that's like really core to being able to do this work well. Mm -hmm. Jackie, what you got? 
When I, I think about it, it's really based on the whole conversation got me thinking about if you want your the products that you're building to be sustainable and scalable, this is something that you're going to have to do sooner than later. You just are going to have to look at the design of keeping people in mind. And despite what we're, we're seeing now um, on one side that you might hear of, there are people that are still looking to make sure that this is built with me in mind and will make their decisions and their votes with their dollars. And so it's important to put those things um, ahead so that you're in the right space as these grow and develop. I honestly feel like that's the way that the world is going. So I think it's important to look at your design and it's never too late. If you haven't done it already, it's never too late to start looking at the different types of design and following, fixing the gaps. Um, and the world will be glad you did. Was that awesome. like 25 things, Katie? That was, that was about okay. 20. I think it was about okay. 20. But okay, okay. Totally fine. As per usual, totally fine, yeah. Jackie. As okay. many as you like. All right. Um, <laughs> and I, I think the other piece that I'll just add on to, you know, kind of complement what the two of you said is also the, the comment that you made about the hubris to think that you know the answer. Like being very, very cautious of that, being very, very thoughtful about the fact that you you don't have all none of us have all the answers, and that's okay. And so if you're going into this work, doing everything you can to hear as many voices as possible, bring as many voices to the table. Um, I think that's just it very, very critical. So um Thank you so much. So uh, Cheryl's book is called Closing the Loop, Systems Thinking for Designers. Um, and, you know, for anyone that is in the instructional design or development or uh, training uh, space, definitely recommend uh, getting that book because I think it's something that will be very, very helpful. Um, Cheryl, how can folks get a hold of you? Yeah, so I'm on, um, I'm in LinkedIn, so you can please feel free to connect with me there. If you're listening and you want to connect, just, yeah, hit me up there. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Cheryl Kababa. I don't check it that often lately. Um, I feel like we're watching uh, Halloween out. Right. <laughs> yes. Twitter. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm not that motivated to go up there, but I do check every once in a while. So you want to <laughs> send yeah. me a message there, feel free. Um, and yeah, and you can find my book at Rosenfeld Media, which is my publisher. Um, and yeah, it's uh, hopefully it's of interest. Um, oh, also Substantial, which is my consultancy. Um, and yeah, you can find us at substantial.com. Awesome, very cool. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really fascinating. Um, and uh, you know, I think this is something that we all need to be thinking about especially you know during our this time in history we'll say um so <laughs> thank you for joining us um this is katie van horn and this is jackie clayton bye, uh, bye. how much do you understand the future of finance i'm jim roos a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast banking transform where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. 
Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.